Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. It's so good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If I sound a little hoarse, it's because we had a wedding this weekend and there was definitely a ton of talking over people and loud, you know, atmospheres. We had a dinner on Thursday where we were shouting, you know, over top of each other with music going. Um, Then Friday rehearsal and rehearsal dinner. And then obviously Saturday was a wedding. So this, I'm still recovering, hoping to make a full recovery in a couple of days. Um, but it was definitely a wonderful time. It was two of our best friends getting married. So it just was a lovely time. Anyway, I have 10 questions today. Thank you all so much for sending them in and for thumbs up, up seeing the ones that, you know, apply to you or you feel are close to the question that you would ask. But without further ado, let's just jump into those. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, I can't ever, I can't imagine ever feeling ready to leave my therapist. I like him so much, even though at times it's painful. The thought of never seeing him again is hugely upsetting. And I know that I'd be really sad. How can people reach a place where they feel okay about ending therapy and not seeing their therapist anymore? And there are a lot of comments on this. I'm just going to read through them because they're all very similar. This is, hey, Katie, I have a follow-up question. I'm going to university in January of next year, and I cannot bear the thought of not being able to see my counselor anymore. I might be able to do online sessions with her, but I'm too scared to ask because what if she says no and leaves? I struggle with fear of abandonment. I don't think I can go through having to open up to a complete stranger all over again. It's taken me nearly a year to fully trust my current counselor, and I feel like she knows my patterns and is able to help me more than any other counselor I've seen before. At this point, I'm not sure if I have it in me to talk to another counselor about everything while constantly worrying that they'll leave. Whenever I think of telling my counselor how concerned I am that I won't be able to see her, I feel like I'll be, uh, I'm being too needy, and I get emotional and I avoid it. I feel like I have to quickly, quote unquote, fix myself within the next few months or I'll never be okay. Now, there are two more comments that I that are similar, but I just want to jump right into this because it's okay to feel attached to your therapist. It's very normal that it's part of like the transference, counter-transference, attachment issues, all that stuff. If we have trauma in our past. There are going to be a lot of reasons that we can struggle to want, like want to continue seeing our therapist, right? We struggle with the thought that we might have to stop. And so I know that people who ask these questions were like, I can never bring it up. That's my best advice. I know it sucks. I know it's hard. But the great thing about therapy is that you're you telling your therapist like, hey, I'm struggling with this and I want to know how to be better is going to prevent them for, from referring you out thinking that, oh, they're not getting better or, or they all are all better or whatever. Honestly, the speaking the truth with them and telling them, hey, I want to improve this is what we're looking for. I know you can think, oh, they're going to get scared and I'm being too needy. That's actually not the case. It'd be different if you were reacting out of this, pretending to be worse than you really are or pretending to be better than you really are or, you know, calling them all the time or texting them all the time or doing the things that we can feel compelled to do when we struggle with attachment and, you know, want to keep seeing our therapist. Those are the things that could cause us to be referred out. I know that just sounds like crazy, but that's really how it works. Because as a therapist, we're, we're looking more for symptoms. But if you're telling me, hey, I've noticed this happening and I'm trying to work on it, then I can help you work on it. That That's incredibly beneficial. Otherwise, I'm like, hey, maybe I'm not a good fit because I don't do attachment-based therapy. And clearly they're, they're super reactive and, and I don't even know what tools to give them, right? If we're not reactive, if instead we speak up and say, hey, this is what I'm going through, then we can help you. It's almost like the the idea that we can't expect a therapist to read our minds, right? Because we're people too. And so the more that they know, then the better they can be at offering us support. Now, the reason that this happens if anybody's struggling is it can be for many reasons. I don't want you to, to think the reasons that I mentioned are the only ones. Obviously, everyone is different. However, the most common reasons for us to be attached to our therapist is because it could be the first person who ever offered us love and support. Like we've never experienced that before. And because of that, we can think that, you know, they we can treat them like our parents or the parent that we wish we had. We can, they can finally be a person that's in a, like 
knows us well, and that can make us scared that we're going to lose them because we don't know if we can deal with that hurt, right? That push-pull, the BPD attachment stuff. We can like having that place to vent every week, even though maybe we don't know if we need the therapy. We just enjoy seeing them. They're part of our support group. All of those different things can feed into us struggling with the thought of ending therapy or feeling like we need to go, you know, forever and ever. Okay. Now there was another comment. Oh, and I want to, the comment that I read about going to university, ask your therapist to do online sessions. The only reason that that wouldn't be allowed and this obviously depends on where, if you live in another country, I know they have similar laws, but I'm just going to speak for the United States is that when I have a license in, I know it's the same in Canada actually too. So if I have a license in my state or province, right, I'm licensed in California at the moment waiting for Texas to send me the papers. It's so annoying, but I'm licensed in California. So I can only treat people who are residents of the state of California. That's just how the licenses work. And so if you are going to school out of state, legally, your therapist cannot continue to see you. Now, when that does happen, because I've had this happen with a few of my patients over the years, I usually continue seeing you back in, this was back in the day. And so it was phone sessions because we didn't do Zoom and stuff like we do now. Um, I've done FaceTimes and things like that too, but we did it that way until you got settled with a new therapist. And so I would do that for maybe a month or two as a transition. And that is legal and ethical, but to continue seeing you is not. And so that would be the only reason. So if you're staying in your area, roughly like your province, your state or whatever, then you should be able to keep seeing them because they're licensed within that jurisdiction. And so that's, I would bring it up. That's something that almost, I mean, everybody offers it, especially now after COVID, right? So ask about it. You, They're going to understand that you can't like fix yourself in the next couple of months. I would encourage you to keep your, like when we're asking for something, we can do I don't want to get too DBT because we can do what's called a deer man. I'm not going to get into that. You can look it up if you want to really detail it out. However, I feel like in this instance, all we need to tell them is, hey, I would love to keep seeing you because I still feel like there's things I need to work on. Almost like you told me, B, I struggle to open up. And since I already know you, I don't want to have to start over. That just seems impossible. And, And third, and C, if you're not moving states, you can be like, I'm still technically in let's say it's you and I, I'm technically still in California. I'm just like three hours away. Would you offer that? Now, I wouldn't see a reason to not offer that as a a therapist. I can't imagine your therapist not allowing that. But keep it short and to the point of like the reasons why. Um, And I don't see any reason why they would say no. Okay. And no, no therapist is ever, well, it's actually unethical to just leave, like up and leave. So they usually have to like titrate you down, Um, get you some referrals, get you transitioned over. And they usually give you months to do that, like at least a month, but usually like two or three. Okay. Now, another comment said, hi, how about if we never want to leave our therapist, not because of attachment, but because he's the only line of support. I know you've mentioned that the goal is to see your therapist for a short while. However, sometimes we have our therapist as our only line of support since family and friends don't get us. Is it wrong to have our therapist for life or as long as we can? I mean, The goal would be to find friends because family obviously is just family. And if they aren't good at this, then they're not. We can try to work with them and try to educate them, but we don't have to, right? But my goal would be for you to find other support like friends and build that up so that you aren't so reliant on me. And the reason that that I say that, that like therapy is not lifelong. Now, yes, people, like I have some friends that have seen the same therapist for like 10 years. And it's not that I would say it's not beneficial, but I'm always very concerned when therapy relationships go on that long, because I think a change of scenery, a change of eyeballs, if we still need to be in therapy, it is can be incredibly beneficial. Sometimes I feel like there's a limit to how much our therapist can help us. But in all truth, in short, if it's helping you and you will find it beneficial and you can continue and pay for it or however you access it, it's okay. But again, the goal would be to make it so you don't need them, right? Because the, the I think I got off topic and I'm sorry, but like when you see a therapist, you go to them to like help you with a certain issue. Now, these issues can take years to work through. Like if we're talking about complex trauma or eating disorders, it can take time. However, the goal is to like be there for maybe a year or two and and bounce out and try it on your own. Doesn't mean you can't go back, right? Your therapist, when you stop seeing a therapist, it's not like, oh, you can never go back. It's just not the goal. Um, and that's because we're supposed to help you get better. And that's like fly, you know, on your own without 
essentially the training wheels, right? I think of therapy as like the training wheels. And so those are really my thoughts. It's not a terrible thing, but I think that my goal would be to have you find friends who can support you or slowly let other people in. I'd be very curious about why we don't have any friends that don't get that, like they don't get you. Uh, I always wonder if, if we're not giving them an opportunity to, if we're too afraid to open up or, you know, maybe we don't have the right people around us. So yeah, I would challenge you to try to find friend support. Also understanding that it is okay to keep a therapist for a long period of time. I just want this, whatever's causing this issue to be resolved. And that might in turn make therapy not as necessary anymore. That makes sense. Okay. And the final question on this, another comment said, yeah, similar question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I've been in therapy for a year and I really don't, oh, and I don't really need therapy right now, but I don't want to stop seeing my therapist because I love her and I can't imagine my life without her. She must also know that I don't really need therapy, but we haven't talked about it. I see her once a month now and that feels great. Oh, that's fine. Once a month. We aren't working on any major issues right now, but my whole family is in the midst of a big transition. For some background, I went through depression. She's helped me a lot. And now I feel like I'm on the, on the other side of that. I just feel comfort in knowing that she's there and I can call her if something comes up and I have a standing appointment. So I know I can run things by her and she'll help me focus on what's important. I really can't imagine not needing this. There's no financial stress. I even pay out of pocket. It's so worth it for me. So I make it work. She isn't in any rush to have me stop seeing her or anything. I just worry about it. I think a check-in, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between, for anybody out there who's worried about feeling like they need their therapist, do this kind of internal check-in. Do we think of our therapist as a replacement for our mom or other caretaker do we see ourselves falling apart without them and are so worried they're going to leave us? So much so that it can cause us anxiety. We can find ourselves pretending to be different in therapy as a result. Those are just some of the questions I want you to consider because those all tie back to actually like deeper childhood wounds, which really means we need therapy still. But I, I just want you to know that those are the reasons that I say like we have to be cognizant of it and and not continue in therapy forever because it can elicit this kind of dependence. And I don't want any of us to be dependent on any other person, right? We want to be self-sustaining and able to do things on our own. That's the goal. Does that mean that it's right for you in this moment? No. You've been in therapy for a year and you, you go once a month. To me, that feels more like wise counsel. Like you go just to check in on things and get another perspective and I think that that's fine. But again, we have to check in on those bigger issues. That's why I've said, you know, I've always talked about like the attachment and the trauma and all of that, because we really want to mitigate that. And then it's, it's not even that that's wrong or that that means then, oh, no therapy for you. No, it actually means that we haven't worked on something that's still affecting us. And that means we really do need to work on deeper things. Maybe we've have just like skirted past the issue or ignored it completely. And it's, so those are just things to consider. And then then we should bring them up with our therapist that, hey, I'm feeling this way or that way. And I think it might have something to do with the way my dad or mom or whoever was. Can we start working on that? You know, that again, it's just back to the work because we, it's just something we need to be aware of. We might be missing an entire issue or the, or the root of the issue. And so that's why it's, we really need to consider. I don't want anybody to think that like, oh, you get into therapy and if you get attached to your therapist, that's bad and you can't see them anymore. No, that's normal. But that means that we need to work on that. We can't just ignore it completely. And having them be your support is great, but it is encouraged that we find other support because you can't just rely on one person for that. We need to have various people we can go to. And yes, I can take time to build up. We don't have to rush, but we should be trying to let people in and see how that feels little by little. Okay. I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of all over the place, but it just depends on the person and what this brings up for you. When you're seeing a therapist, it stirs up a lot of old patterns and behaviors and thoughts about ourselves and relationships. And so we have to kind of acknowledge that, talk to our therapist about it and work to heal it. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question is, hi, Katie. Could you talk a bit more about reasons why we might be repulsed by our own being? 
You mentioned in episode 128 that we can be so disgusted with ourselves and this can be a trauma response. It can, especially if we have sexual abuse in our past or emotional abuse. I feel repulsed by my entire being, including my physical body and especially any sexual desire, my personality and thoughts. I feel intense shame and I don't want to be seen literally or figuratively. Now it could be trauma, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That can be the cause of a lot of things. I think that's why we bring it up so often, but it's not for everybody, right? Not everyone has a trauma response. Even if we've been traumatized, that doesn't mean we have PTSD, right? So that could be what's going on for you, or it could be not what's going on. And other things that can cause us to be repulsed by our entire being, I would put in like purity culture in religious trauma. If you don't know what I'm talking about, through the 90s specifically, but I believe it still exists today, there was this, and I even grew up in this, it was like, there was a lot of talk about how sex was so dirty and wrong, and like, um, you should be ashamed of yourselves, and you need to save yourself from marriage, and if you don't, like, there was a lot of judgment and shaming around, you can even just Google what, what it was purity culture, but it believed that like, you shouldn't ever have sex. And it messed with a lot of people. Like I've spoken about friends of mine who still have struggled, struggled to have sex in their marriages because it's still like, it was so like programmed into us to think it was dirty and bad. that Like it's hard for people to enjoy it and actually have a fulfilling sex life later on. So there could be that, but yours seems to go deeper than that. It seems more of like a, a deeply rooted, like self-esteem way that we talk to ourselves, the way we engage with the world and just, yeah, our self-talk mainly would be what I would try to focus on. And the reason I would say that is because based on what those common phrases are, right? We all have those repeat things we say to ourselves. This could be anything from like, no one's ever going to love me. I'm so stupid. I'm so lazy. I'm so fat, so skinny, so ugly. So whatever, whatever the things are we say, there's usually these repeats and there's like a top 10. There might be a top like 500, but I'm just saying there's like, they usually share commonalities and these common themes. So top 10, top five things. And as we try to track our self-talk and use bridge statements to work them in a more positive direction, bridge statements, meaning instead of thinking I'm so ugly, I think I'm open to the idea that Katie believes this can get better and I might not be as ugly as I think. I'm open to that maybe, right? These are very soft. They're not really positive, but they're definitely not negative. And even though it doesn't feel like a, a huge shift, trust me when I tell you, you will experience the difference. So there's that. And in doing those things, we tra we're tracking those thoughts and we can see the theme. So is what is this root cause? Do we think it is about like just maybe it was emotional abuse as a child? Again, maybe trauma response where we bullied at some point. Do we just struggle and talk shittily to ourselves as kind of a coping, like self-deprecating thing? Like be curious about it, not judgmental. It often is from trauma, but not always. Everybody's different. And we have to take time to figure out where it's coming from uh, for us. And that way we can work to heal it. But in the meantime, those bridge statements can really, really help. Okay. And if it's purity culture and stuff, again, that's like a religious trauma thing. And it would behoove you to find a therapist who understands that. And it's okay to ask them before you make an appointment. Okay. Now there's a comment on it that said this, and why is it that I usually reject care? Hmm. I don't want to be cared for. Even if someone shows some signs of love and this someone can be anyone, including family, I can't accept it, which makes me feel guilty. Okay, not wanting to be cared for usually comes from a deeply rooted belief about us not being good enough or not being worthy of care. Probably also why you feel really terrible about who you are, what you look like, you know, sexually, your entire being, like physical body and everything. I think that you know, when someone offers us care, that's really them offering love. And if we don't think that we're deserving of love, we're not going to be able to accept it. Hence the rejection. And so I think, yes, 
that's that's why it's because you you think so poorly of yourself you're like i don't want to take up anybody's time i'm not worthy of getting care or support and it's a, again we have to check in on that self talk we have to figure out where it's coming from for us we need to use some of those bridge statements to assist us in the now yes it's exhausting and tiring but give yourself I don't know, maybe 15 minutes, either at the beginning of your day, at the end of the day, or if you have a break at work where you know you can take time to tap in, you can do it then. Whatever works for you, make it work for you, fit it into your schedule in a a real way so that we can sustain it and do it. Because when I tell you it's life-changing, I'm not exaggerating. Changing our words to ourselves from these negatives to just less negative feels fucking incredible. And so make some time for that. And yeah. And if any of those things, those beliefs I just mentioned bring true to you, write those down. That's helpful in therapy. To, it gives us kind of a, a little bit more guidance on how we should start our work with our therapist and what direction we need to take it in. Okay. Because again, like I said, it could be trauma, could be bullying. And I'm not saying bullying is not trauma. I'm just naming like some different issues, sexual abuse, physical abuse. It could be emotional abuse would be my my most likely only because it's like words that we're saying. So maybe we've heard those from someone else. Could be a teacher that said something shitty. Anything like that could be a divorce we're going through or a bad, nasty breakup. Uh, If you can track back to when this started, that can be helpful. It might be your whole life, in which case we'd look more to our parents and family set up. But yeah, that's kind of why we just don't think we're worth it. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. And it says... Katie, I've heard people talk about diet culture. Me too, it's terrible. Specifically how it's harmful and can lead to disordered eating and eating disorders. Yes. But I've also heard news about the increasing obesity crisis in the US. I'm curious. As an eating disorder therapist, do you think that there's a relationship between the two? I do. Well, as a lot, I'll talk, I have a lot of thoughts. So not even just diet culture. Um, If so, how do you think they affect each other? Do you think these two problems are mutually exclusive? I personally believe that they both exist at the same, oh, that they can both exist at the same time. And is it possible to address one problem without turning it into another? For example, addressing or treating the obesity crisis without that in turn feeding into diet culture or disordered eating and vice versa. Yes. Now, okay. If you don't know what what we're referencing when we say diet culture, especially online, it can be, this, it's like the, there's this new diet, like, uh, go keto. Um, it was like the West, was it West beach diet or Palm beach diet or some shit like that? No carbs, uh, protein only, um, organic only any of this, like only, only shit that we get. It's honestly just a way to make money. Take this pill, take Golo and lose blah, 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 blah pounds. And I've never kept it off, but I keep it off now. The diet industry is a billion dollar industry. It, they make so much mad loot off of making us feel bad about ourselves. And diet culture really feeds into, pun intended, disordered eating behavior and eating disorders. Because then we get caught in this yo-yo. You guys know how much I fucking hate diets and don't believe in them at all. It's more important that we check in with hunger fullness cues. Mm-hmm. And let ourselves eat what we're craving. If you go to a restaurant and they have a, it says the best cheeseburger in town and cheeseburgers are like your thing and you don't get it and you get like a a Caesar salad or some shit, you're going to only want that cheeseburger. And chances are you're probably binge later because you're not satisfied. And so I've always believed that there's room for all foods in our diet in moderation when we check in with hunger, fullness and cravings and things like that. Now, I know you're like, but Katie, what if I just crave junk food all the time? Trust me when I tell you, first of all, there's no food, it's junk food, but we could say food that has more nutritional value and food that has less nutritional value. Now, if I, I love chocolate, if I make a tray of brownies and I am checking in with my hunger fullness, not binging, I'm going to have a few. And if I have like a few every day, I start to be like, I don't even want it anymore. What if I told you you could only eat pizza all day, every day? You'd be like, yes. And then by day two, you'd be like, fuck this shit. I'm sick of it. Why am I still eating this? I don't want it anymore. Right. It doesn't taste good. Like you want, our bodies crave varieties of food so we can get varieties of nutrients. Now, does that mean it's all like boiled chicken breasts and salads. No, it's okay to eat all foods. Just check in with yourself. Okay, and I could talk about that forever. So I'm gonna keep moving on to the question. So do I believe that these are linked? Like we do have a obesity crisis in a lot of parts of the world. It's not just the US, but specifically they talk about it. 
And I believe that diet culture feeds into that, again, pun intended, because when we say we can't have something, that's like all that we want. If I tell myself I can never, I'm not going to eat any more chocolate. Well, then all I want is chocolate. And the moment I fall off that wagon, then I could binge eat. Cause I'm like, we can do that black and white, all or nothing thinking where we're like, well, fuck it. I I messed up already. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. And we go completely rogue again, not queuing into hunger fullness and just eating until essentially we probably feel sick or we feel too full to eat anymore. And then we're like, oh, we feel bad about ourselves. And then the cycle starts again. And so, yes, I believe diet culture does um, affect or lead to eating disorder behavior, both restrictive and binge based because they're all the same. It's all a way to cope. And when we feel like our life's out of control, we can turn to things that we can control, which is our body. Now I do, I guess my last little thought that I want to say is I also think that some of the body positivity movement has, and I know I might, people might disagree and it's okay to disagree, but I am always very cautious of, it's not that we can't love our bodies because there's nothing wrong with the premise of love bodies of all types. But I do think sometimes the glorification of what I would call binge eating disorder is not healthy. I'm not a doctor. I'm not telling anybody they need to lose or gain weight. I'm just saying that you, if you find yourself in that bucket, it's important to do an inventory and figure out if you are overeating and if you're doing it as a way to cope. Or if we're just so numbed out, we don't even know hunger fullness cues. I can't tell you how many of my binge eaters in my practice when I would say, you know, for the next day, I want you to track your hunger fullness. I want you to put it into this app. I use recovery record a lot with my patients, um, but there's others out there. And they would tell me they didn't know. They're like, I don't even know what you mean. I, I eat one meal at 4 p.m. and then I eat at like 10 p.m. And I was like, that's not okay. You know, we need, then I'd have them see a dietitian. We get them on a meal plan for a while to get your, our food, like our food intake needs to be more regular than that it needs to be every three to four hours. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just here to tell you. So I do think if we're ever glorifying ultra thin or ultra overweight bodies, it's not, we're not actually glorifying health. We need to glorify people checking in with themselves and letting their bodies be at the size that they are. Again, body positivity is great everybody's body's different, but that doesn't mean that we should glorify any type of eat, of disordered eating behavior or eating disorders. Okay. Now somebody else commented and said, yes, I'm a big girl. And I've been dealing with both the horrors of diet culture and the obesity crisis in Canada my whole life. I recently been put on a medication for my diabetes and it has helped with weight loss. I don't know how much I've lost, but my clothes are fitting much looser on me and I'm getting praise and positive comments for the first time that I found myself at times falling into diet culture behaviors to help me lose more. Uh Oh, then my binge eating disorder kicks in and some nights I have small binges and I beat myself up for fa failing my so-called diet. That's the problem. Stopping this medication is not an option. It's working on my diabetes too well. My question is, how do I lose weight but not fall into the diet culture trap? I know this is going to sound crazy, but the way to lose weight and not fall into the diet culture trap is to not go on a diet, to get more in touch with your hunger fullness. It's called intuitive eating. And I know for anybody out there, and I know specifically for the people who ask these questions and stuff, this could be trauma related. And when we have a trauma happen, it can make it difficult for us to regulate our emotions. We can feel very out of control. We can be searching for things to help us feel more in control. And spoilers, one of those is our bodies, right? And so we can find ourselves binging or restricting or purging or any number of disordered eating behaviors or even exercise addiction, which you guys know I had a video about a long time ago. Well, not a long time, a few months ago, um, that where I shared how when I was growing up, I definitely exercised to cope. So I get that. Like I've, I've felt that before. Um, I look, I don't do it anymore. Thank God. Cause I mean, years and years of therapy. Thank you, uh, Jana. But anyways, um, we have to, instead of thinking about weight loss, which I know doctors are so uninformed when it comes to the eating disorder behavior that they're like, let's overlook the fact that I think this person might have an ulcer and just tell them they need to lose weight. I know that there's stigma and there's judgment and there's lack of proper care when, when we are heavier. Um, I know I've heard from a lot of my viewers and people in our community where they talk about how horrible that is. And so I know they're going to tell you to lose weight, but I 
not that I'm telling you what that the medical advice that they're offering is wrong, but I'm here to tell you that there's a therapeutic component to it, that if we don't work on our anxiety or our depression or our trauma and find other ways to cope, we're going to keep reaching for that eating disorder, whether that's restricting, binging, whatever. And so I encourage you to say, fuck it to the losing weight focus because that's not the goal. The goal is for you to get back in touch with your body and be able to acknowledge hunger fullness cues because the weight loss will happen if your body's at a weight it's not supposed to be at or the weight gain if we're underweight. Our our body's going to find, you know, an area where it needs to sit and it's going to hang out there and, you know, within a range of like 10 or 15 pounds, our bodies can kind of yo-yo around and that's just regular body behavior. And so my answer is you don't focus on the weight loss. You focus on getting back in touch with your body and your hunger and fullness. And you work to find other coping skills to help you manage while you're not using the eating disorder. Because that's why the diet culture gets gets us when we struggle with eating disorder behavior. It's because we love that black and white thinking. And then we'll see some results, either you know the weight loss or whatever. And people will comment. We're like, yes, yes, yes. You can't sustain that forever. It's all or nothing. Life is in the gray. There's going to be times where the foods that are you know on your quote unquote safe list aren't available. Well, then what are you going to do? You know. And so that's why working with a dietitian, getting a meal plan, and getting back in touch with your hunger fullness cues is how you can heal. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hello, Katie. Hello. Hope you are well. I am. I asked this question previously, but it didn't get answered. So I hope it's okay to ask again. Of course, always know that you can always ask questions again, you guys. There's no limits. Just, you know, until it gets answered, keep asking. But if I do hard it, just so you know, if you see that the Opinions That Don't Matter channel has hearted your question, know that that means that it is going to be in a podcast. I'm just two weeks ahead. Okay. And that's just in case somebody catches COVID or something happens, right? It's always better to be ahead. My question is, does there have to be a reason for hating hugs or can it just be related to who we are as a person? Ever since I can remember, even as a young child, I've hated hugs. This has continued into adulthood. I hate social events and family gatherings because I feel like there's always the expectation and 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 anticipation, sorry, of others to give hugs, especially when greeting and saying goodbye. This makes me anxious and where possible, I try to avoid giving hugs. But when this isn't uh, possibly weird or I, oh, when this isn't possible, weirdly, I will initiate the hug. I think I do this because I feel like I have more control and then I try to get it over and done with. The only memory from my childhood that I can relate, that I can think of relates to this was as a child, I refused to give relatives visiting a hug. This caused my parents and relatives to be very upset with me to the point where I felt like I had no choice but to give them hugs every time from then on. Could this be the cause or is it just me? And also, how do I overcome this or should I just accept it? Thank you, Katie. And sorry this question so long. It's okay. It's a good question. And when I saw this come through, I was honestly very intrigued because my brain went in a lot of directions. Number one, obviously, could be a trauma response, but you you don't say that you have any memory of anything regarding that because a lot of my patients who don't like touch have had family, you know, have been sexually abused or physically abused. So touch feels unsafe. And I was putting this out there in case that relates to anybody else. So it could be that. It also could be like even my girlfriend, Rocio, her family wasn't very affectionate physically. My mom's even this way too. And therefore, it's like they're not really used to it. They don't do it innately and it's kind of makes them uncomfortable. And Rocio is actually a little more intense than my mom where she like doesn't really like them. Like sometimes when I want to hug her, I'm like, can I get a hug? I'm going to, I'm going to hug you. And she's like, yeah, 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 that's okay. I've known her for, oh God, like, I guess like 16, 17 years. So maybe I'm one of those people that she allows. I don't know, but she's very specific and doesn't enjoy it. And so that could be you. Maybe your family wasn't affectionate, but it sounds like they kind of were. But again, I'm just I'm just throwing out these ideas because my brain goes in a lot of directions. And then I can't move past the thought that this could be part of a sensory processing disorder. Now, I think I have a video about that, but you can also Google what they are and like listen, read, read about them. But I know for my sensory processing folks, uh, it's, it can be touch related where even clothing, like tags on clothing can make us go nuts. We don't like certain fabrics or set things that are too tight. Um, it can also relate to food textures. And this can also, obviously, as I'm sure a lot of you are like, what? This can be part of autism spectrum disorder as well, because we can have those kind of sensory issues. Um, but it can also be related to having people touch us and, and dealing with physical touch. Um, 
Yeah, it could be any of those things. And I'm, there's probably others that I'm forgetting. I would love to hear people's thoughts in the comments. But I think my my advice would be to to talk to a therapist because something's happening and I'm curious where it's coming from. And the fact that it gives you so much anxiety to me means that it's like, it's affecting your ability to function. It's upsetting your life and your family. And it's just something you don't like and you don't know why. I would want to see someone to kind of figure it out, right? Because it could go in all sorts of directions. Um, And those are just the ones that came to me from the top of my head. I mean, I even have patients with eating disorders who don't like to be hugged because they don't like people, you know, feeling their body, you know, and and that could be related to trauma and things like that, but it also just could be eating disorder related because we're so uncomfortable in our bodies. Um, Yeah. So that's how I would go about figuring it out. And then once you figure out where it's coming from, then you can overcome it. I wouldn't just accept it. It's something that's bothering you. It's something that's getting in the way of you, your ability to see your family and yeah, you feel pressure. Um, Also, I think in general, like your parents, like kind of forcing you when you were younger, I think that's not very good. I'm not saying that's a trauma. It could have felt like it to you. You'd have to tell me. Um, But I think that that obviously also like attaches this icky memory and this icky feeling to something that's supposed to be like a a show of affection and love and excitement. And so that could be part of it too, but you'd have to dig in and, and figure it out. Ask yourself some questions about it. And some of the things I mentioned, um, look up sensory processing disorder, watch my video on it. There might be other videos on YouTube that are also helpful. Um, yeah, even some of my friends who have ADHD don't like a lot of touch either. But anyways, I think it's just something to look into. I would see a professional. I would tell them what's going on, have them maybe do some assessments, maybe do some testing to figure it out. But as far as overcoming it, I think we have to figure out where it's coming from and then we can do it. And I'm sorry, I don't have like a a way for you to overcome it. If we think it's anxiety driven specifically, then there are things we can do to calm our system down. Like we can do full body shakes. We can do breathing exercises. We can do impulse logs or journal, talk to a friend, any of those types of things to kind of get us back down to baseline. Um, And that might make it better, but I don't, in this case, it doesn't sound like that's where it's coming from. So unfortunately, there's not like a tool that I can offer you right now until we know more. Um, So I would see somebody and be curious, not judgmental about where it's coming from for you. Okay. Keep us posted. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, Hey Katie, can you talk more about sand tray therapy? Like when does a therapist decide to use it for adults? Is it suitable as a form of trauma therapy on its own or is it supplemental? My therapist does EMDR as well. Not a fan actually, and would rather stick with sand tray, but not sure it's enough. Okay, now the first thing I want to say about sand tray therapy is that I don't do it myself. Like I always want you guys to know when I haven't practiced using something like that in my practice with my patients, but I have had people who I've seen who have utilized it and found it helpful. And so just roughly what sand tray therapy is, is it's kind of like what it sounds like, but it uses sand, water, and a variety of like different miniatures. Like you can put little miniature things out to create stories to explain past experiences or your like your inner child stuff, things you've been through, your inner world. Essentially it's it's allowing you to kind of create stories through that. And this can help you become aware of maybe unknown past traumas or get back in touch with the inner child. I think of it kind of in the way and I might be wrong with this, but kind of in the way that we do like parts work or or schema therapy, we have different parts of yourself. Sometimes doing sand tray can allow you access to these different parts and allow you to see them for what they are. I know that's like a lot of therapy speak, so I'm doing my best to try to make it make sense. But it's, they say, so it's, it is great for trauma, okay? And I want everybody to know that it is it is a treatment that people utilize for trauma readily. Like when I was looking this up for you guys, I was reading research about how it's helpful for trauma. Now, they usually say it complements talk therapy, meaning it is a supplemental. I didn't see anything saying that it couldn't be done on its own. So from what I know and from what I've read, it sounds like it's it's fine. If it's the most beneficial for you, then for right now, that's what we should do. If you do it, ever find yourself plateauing. Because here's the thing. I think when it comes to therapy, because a lot of people would say, oh, EMDR is like supplemental. But if a type of therapy is helping you and it's it's the most beneficial thing you've ever done, then it should be the type of therapy you're doing. And people are like, oh, you should only do that in conjunction with this other thing. 
if that other thing isn't working for you, why wouldn't you do the thing that is working for you? Like I said, as far like, and these were in like article, like research articles. And even like when you Google it, you'll see things come up from like, um, like medical news today and uh, WebMD and things like that, where it talks about the benefits and how it can really help with, you know, trauma and anxiety and depression and things like that. And it also, they say it helps people engage with like mind body connection because you're doing something right. It's like a physical thing that you're doing. Um, And if you have trouble making eye contact, it can give you something to focus on. I could see so many benefits to sand tray therapy. And the fact that it is like hands-on, I think is really, really cool. So the, I pulled up a list of the things. So just so you know, like when you're putting your sand tray things together, it can have like little humans, they have like little fantasy figures, like wizards, it says animals, trees and other vegetation, vehicles, homes, signs. So you get to kind of put together a world and it can help you kind of express if you can't find the words, it can help you express maybe what you're thinking or feeling. I honestly kind of think it is, think of it as like kind of a, a play therapy for adults. And so we can use it with children also, but I think that this it can be really, really beneficial. And the main pre, the main reasons that they use it is for trauma, grief and loss, um, you know, aggression, anger management. It can help with depression, anxiety, people with learning disabilities, ADHD, autism, and overall it's, they say it's like a combination of like play therapy and art therapy. And the benefits of it are endless. Like you can read a ton of articles talking about the benefits of sand tray therapy. And so overall, my thoughts are if it's helping you and EMDR is not working, you don't like it, it doesn't work for everybody, right? And sand tray does stick with it because that's what's helping. And we went to therapy to get help. So yep, I think it's suitable on its own. Let's move on to question number six. Question number six is, hey, Katie, my question is about DBT therapy for complex PTSD due to sexual abuse. I'm only about six weeks into therapy with my new therapist, so I know that we are early on in the process. I had told her that I have not done well with therapy in the past because I tend to dissociate whenever things come up that are hard. I've been utilizing email between sessions to give her some of my trauma history and other information as it comes up as it's easier for me Oh, as it comes up, as it's easier for me to bring, for me to email things rather than to try to say them in person. Sorry, I had trouble with that sentence. Once I've hit send, can't take it back. Then hopefully they'll bring it up to discuss it further. Thus far, she's only sent me messages back saying she really appreciates that I send in the emails and that it is and will be helpful in our work together. But none of it has been really brought up in session thus far, other than the fact that she isn't surprised that the triggers, body memories, and flashbacks have increased since starting back in therapy because our brains are like... We're in therapy. It's time to focus more on this now. Yeah. Agreed. I've not really brought up much about details about the abuse so far, but more tiptoed around it with, um, around that with some other hard topics, past self-injury, coping skills in various forms, only actually, actually admitted to the cutting part, haven't been able to bring myself to admit to sexual self-injury, but triggers and things of that sort. sort. I did tell her that the self-injury urges have definitely been strong since being back in therapy. I haven't given in to the urges though that I've been having... Um, what I feel like is a compulsive, oh, compulsive sex with my husband since being back in therapy. Yeah, it, it could trigger, again, it's like that self-injury, right? While he isn't complaining about it, <laughs> I feel that it's possibly just another form of sexual self-injury and not necessarily healthy for me. I don't know that I could actually bring myself to admit this and talk about it with her. That's okay, all in due time. Not that I expect her to really send full emails back because I don't, but I do appreciate the acknowledgement that she receives them. She'll often just send an email a few days later. She said she's fine with me sending her emails and we use it as a kind of working journal. I love that. And using it as a jumping off point for our work together. I guess my question is more with the process of the DBT. Are we just not to a point that she feels we're ready to really get into discussing any of this information and eventually it's gonna come up? I've never really done this type of therapy before. I understand trying to get some basic grounding techniques and coping skills down. Just thinking at some point, we're going to need to address these things as well. Thanks, Katie. Yes, you're right. So DBT is interesting. Now, it, it would you've been seeing her for how long? I have to go back. Sorry. Oh, six weeks. Yeah. Okay. So it's good that you're sending her the messages. It, of course, your self-injury urges have come back, hence why the, you feel like you're compulsively having sex with your husband and you're kind of reverting back to that self-injurious behavior because it seems less harmful maybe, or we don't want to break our, I've had patients who will do other things because they don't want to go back to cutting because that's, they have like their X number of days clean. Um, 
whatever the case, we don't need to bring that up with her yet, but we do need to ask her for some coping skills. And what I would say to her is that like, you kind of already, it sounds like you've already kind of told her that like, Hey, I'm being more triggered and having body memories. What can I do to be feel better? Because the way the DBT works is it starts with mindfulness and we can spend quite a little while on that because that's trying to get us. It's, it's a difficult process for a lot of people, especially if we have trauma in our past. And the goal of mindfulness is for us to get back in our bodies. I know you hate it. But get back into our bodies and start to acknowledge how emotions feel, emotional responses, how we experience them before we're reacting out of them. And that's where we try to learn. It's That's why it's like the first step in DBT. And so I would, I don't know what kind of work you're doing, but I would assume she's trying to get you kind of comfortable so you can get into those tools and techniques. But I would let her know, hey, I know we're probably, you know, just warming up and getting through the mindfulness component, but I'm going to need some coping skills because I do feel my urge is getting stronger and I don't want to give in to them. Um, yeah. And, and that's what I would ask for. Cause that's really what you need. You need some ways to deal and cope. And I have a video you can go on YouTube and type in 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it will pop up. You can go through them. I have process-based ones and distraction-based ones. Sometimes we'll need to distract and use those coping skills ahead of time so that we can do the process-based ones because it depends on how dissociated we are, right? And I've talked endlessly about different grounding techniques and ways that you can try to stay grounded, like the counting colors in the room, the ABCs where look around for something that starts with letter A, letter B, letter C, stuff like that. Um, full body shakes, changing the temperature, like holding ice or putting a cold rag on your the back of your neck. There can be a lot of different things that we can do, um, but we might need other things to cope. And it's okay to ask our therapists to offer that, right? You're in therapy and you're feeling worse and you need something like throw me a, you know, throw me some kind of safety raft here, lady. <laughs> so I think it's okay to ask. Um, that's the way that DBT progresses is it starts with that mindfulness component because everything's going to build off of that. Like we can't get towards the end where we go to interpersonal effectiveness unless we're able to like acknowledge how we experience certain emotions and choose to respond instead of react. Do you know what I mean? It's like a lot of the exercises around getting into our wise mind versus our emotion mind. And so anyways, long story short, yes, that's normal. She's probably doing the mindfulness stuff. Ask her about it. It's also okay just to ask her to be like, I've never done DBT. Like I think the first part's mindfulness. Is that what we're going to work on? It's okay to ask. And then just say, hey, I'm going to need some tools and techniques to help me because I'm struggling. And I'm glad you're in treatment. It does get better. It does get easier. DBT comes a lot of homework, um, but hopefully it'll help you manage those self-injury urges. Also, DBT is like right in line with that. Like impulse logs are kind of part of it. Um, yeah, it's going to be helpful. I'm excited for you. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk about grief. You've mentioned that you don't have to have someone pass away to experience grief. And I was wondering if you can grieve the loss of an opportunity. Yes, you can. Or a future that you thought would happen, but doesn't. Mm -hmm. As for many people, COVID changed everything for me. And I still have so many emotions about losing opportunities and everything else that COVID ruined. Some people have mentioned that it's a loss and I need to grieve, but I don't know how to do that. Especially when everything about grief is about losing a person. Also, could you explain a bit about complicated grief in the situation as well? Because it may apply as during the couple of years of COVID, there was loss of there was a loss over and over, and I've never really known how to deal with it. So it feels like it's just built up. Although I have moved past this um, the season of constant disappointment and loss, I still feel like it dominates my life. I would appreciate any help, and I really hope it all makes sense. Thanks so much. Yes, it makes complete sense. Okay, now when it comes to grieving. It's allowing, what it means to grieve in my, and this is my definition, right? I'm sure you can Google it and it will tell you something different. But what I mean when I say allow yourself to grieve means that when you want to cry about it and feel sad about it, let yourself do that. I'd also encourage you to like journal some about all the things you lost and how that makes you feel. Pissed off, right? We're kind of going through those stages of grief already, denial, anger. And I'm again, those, I know it's very limiting and the stages are not encompassing of all we go through. So, but you're going to feel some of those things. And it's in the not allowing ourselves to feel that we end up struggling with things like depression and anxiety as a result, which is kind of moves into your part about like complicated grief, because 
our grief gets complicated when it's compounded, right? Where we don't have like one thing to grieve or if it is a person or a relationship, right? Because you even said about like um, the future you thought would happen, but doesn't like grieving that. That can happen in relationships. When someone dumps us or we get divorced, we had this like dream of this future and it's not going to exist and we need to grieve that, right? Think of all the things and that we had planned or at least thought were gonna happen and then they don't. And so essentially grief is when we allow ourselves to be sad about what didn't take place or what we're going to miss. Now, when that comes to your situation, I have a feeling that you've just been like pushing forward like a lot of us. And because we're in our stress response because of COVID being such a crazy experience and not knowing what was going on and people in such disagreement around how to deal with it and all that stuff, I am sure that you never felt like you had an opportunity to just let yourself feel it because you're like in it, right? But now that we're kind of not that it's gone, but we're like coming out the other end and life is kind of going back to some semblance of normalcy, we can find ourselves overrun with grief. And I've even found myself more tearful lately and and I've been trying to let myself cry. And that's really my advice is like talking to people about it, the things that you lost, the things you're upset about. If you want to see a therapist, that would be incredibly beneficial. I'd encourage you to do that. But we can journal about it if we don't want to, you know, if we're not open to talking to people, we don't have people in our life we want to talk to about it. But let them know about what's going on. Write about the things that you're missing, things you're upset about, things you're angry about, and let yourself feel those emotions. This might might be beneficial for you to do, um, you know, if you don't like to journal, like a collage or um Maybe we just write nasty bullet points about how we feel. Anything to get it out of your head and to allow you to experience it and acknowledge it. And writing, I find to be a really great tool because of that, because you see it, because you think it and you feel it and you write it down and you see it. And I think that that can be really beneficial and really cathartic. But overall, that's what I mean by grieving is instead of stuffing it down and trudging forward, thinking like, I just got to keep working and it'll get back. I've got to make this happen we allow ourselves to be sad. There's things that were missed. And this is not a time for judgment. I don't need you to even judge yourself and say like, well, some people lost loved ones. That was my problem at the beginning. It's like, I don't necessarily have anything really bad happening, but fuck it hurts and it's terrible. And there's enough, unfortunately, there's enough pain to go around. You like expressing and acknowledging your grief and pain doesn't take it from anybody else. You have every right to feel how you feel. So let yourself feel it. Now, when it comes to complicated grief, essentially what I think of that is just like when we struggle to move past it because we don't allow ourselves to feel it, which is kind of what's happening to you or having repeated griefs, right? We can think of it like in the same way we think about complex trauma, right? We have repeated pain and we have never given ourselves an opportunity to express it. So it just keeps building. And this, I mean, I think this can apply to regular grief as well. But when it comes to complicated grief, a lot of times they talk about like, you know, you can't do what you used to do. It looks like depression to me a lot. You isolate yourself or withdrawal. So you don't actually reach out for any kind of support. You can, um, you know, have thoughts of suicide. Again, that depression kind of part. You can think that you you could have done something to make it different. You know, we can do that kind of bargaining thing. Um But I think definitely for you, what you are experiencing is kind of complicated because I don't know how many different instances of grief you feel like you have experienced in the last two and a half years and what you even allowed yourself to be sad or mad or just upset about to grieve about. And yeah, so that that's really that's really how it applies. And I think like you said, that loss over and over is compounding it. And the the more that you can allow yourself to feel it, I know you feel like it's dominating your life, but I'm here to tell you that if you actually let yourself feel it, it will get lower. It'll get like lesser and lesser and lesser and more manageable and more manageable until we're able to move past it. Now, I do want to bring up the fact that grief is weird and we it can go away and we can go back to living our lives like 99% of the time feeling fine, no grief experience at all. But then it's also okay and normal for it to come back periodically, even if it's not a loss of a loved one. Like you can think, man, if that thing could have happened, like I have thoughts like that. There's things that I thought would turn out and they didn't. And it's frustrating and it's hard. And so I'll think of it every so often when I'm like, oh, fuck, I wish that had happened. And I can be like sad about it. Things would have been different if that turned out or if that worked out for me or, you know, it's okay to grieve and it's okay for it to come back periodically, but it should, as you let yourself feel it and talk about it, it will go away little by little. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie. I'm wondering if you can have PTSD due to multiple occurrences with cancer. 
Yes, you can. Um, I have only heard of CPTSD coming out of abuse or sexual trauma, but a lot of the symptoms are true for me. I've also had other things happen to me that could be considered trauma, such as witnessing domestic violence and also being bullied due to having cancer. Who bullies a cancer patient? What a bunch of assholes. I really struggle with identity issues due to the cancer, the flashbacks, fearing of it, fear of it returning again, among other things. And I'm just looking for some validation and some clarification. Thank you so much. Yes, you can have, think of the definition of being traumatized or how we can become traumatized. It's when we fear for the the safety or security, at least it could be emotional or physical of ourselves or those we love. I don't think anybody out there would say that cancer is not tra- traumatizing and terrifying and you think you might die, right? Also, a lot of the treatments bring you to like the brink of death. That's also terrifying. You lose your hair, you lose weight, you can look really sick. It's horrible. And like you said, not to mention the fear of it returning again. My girlfriend Rocio had like stage one, like a little lump in her breast that she had to get removed. And she's still scared of it returning. She had the weird scan come back for her yearly checkup. And she like called me and texted me about it. And I was worried for her, but luckily turned out to be nothing. They weren't worried, Um, but she was stressed for days. And that fucking sucks. So yes, complex trauma. You've been repeatedly traumatized over and over again. Not to imagine, like, not even to also add in there that you also witness domestic violence. Again, the safety of someone you care about, your parent, and also being bullied, trauma. So yes, you can have complex PTSD due to multiple occurrences with cancer because you were repeat, your life was repeatedly threatened, okay? So yes, and I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm glad you're here and okay, and I hope it never returns again. Now, another comment on this said, can someone have PTSD or complex PTSD from repeated medical trauma? Yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. And that would be the word that I would use would be medical trauma. This can happen when we feel like we had to be rushed in. Like one of my girlfriends um, hemorrhaged after her last delivery of her second child. She lost so much blood. They had to rush her into surgery and she has trauma from that. She actually upped her therapy from once a week to twice a week for a few months because she was like, I like, can't cope. And I'm like, checking myself all the time, make sure I'm not bleeding. It was just really scary for her. So yes, we can be traumatized, have complex PTSD from repeated medical traumas. It can also be like rushed surgeries or feeling like we don't have a choice and we have to do something, you know, it can be any number of things like that. Um, another comment said, I've never had cancer, but I have experienced many incidents since childhood. Like my father was gunned down when I was almost nine, which was 20 days before Christmas and my birthday. I was molested once when I was about 12 years old, and I also grew up during the Civil War in El Salvador. I have a, um, a controlling and easily angry mother, and I've lost beloved dogs last year who were the closest things to me. Those dogs are the only thing I truly cared about. I know these are very different events, but can this cause complex PTSD and or BPD tendencies? Yes, it can, um, because it's repeated trauma. Again, your father is someone you you care about, and so having them, gun, I'm so sorry that happened to you, is so traumatizing them being molested. Doesn't matter if it's once or multiple, that's is traumatizing, terrifying, right? And trauma. Your mom sounds like she could be potentially emotionally or physically abusive. Trauma. And growing up in a civil war in El Salvador, traumatizing, so traumatizing. And then losing your dogs. So I'm so sorry for your loss. So Yes, all those events can lead up to a complex PTSD diagnosis or potentially BPD. If anybody doesn't know, BPD is often born out of um, out of trauma. But the main difference is that BPD has this like intense fear of abandonment, which we don't find in complex PTSD. It's just not one of the diagnostic criteria. But there's a ton of overlap. So I think the you know when it comes to getting diagnosed properly, we can often be misdiagnosed. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. And this question says, I know that mental illness can warp your perception into wrongly believing that you're a burden if you reach out for support, but it can also legitimately cause strain for people being reached out to. How do I tell which one is happening? How much support is fair to seek out? When does it become too much? I love this question because you are right, right? Mental illness can make us think that reaching out at all is wrong, but reaching out too much can sometimes be too much of a burden for people. And here's my answer. We have to talk to our loved ones. When we reach out to someone, it's important that we say, hey, I'm having a tough time. I need you to tell me when it's too much because I don't want to burden you. 
And I'm not going to be upset if you just tell me you can't talk today or it is too much. I can't, um, I can't be there for you today. I'm, I'm overwhelmed or my life is, you know, I'm having my own struggles. I can't really listen today. It's okay to say those things and we need to tell people it's okay. And then we need to uphold our end of the deal. So if they tell us that we cannot be reactive, I know it fucking sucks, but that's why we have therapists. That's the difference. That's why we need variations of support, right? A therapist is someone you can bitch and moan to about things and you can lean on them. You can unload, you can dump all the things you need to dump and they're not going to tell you it's too much. It's our job. We're there for you and it's okay. And you can do it all the time. So that's why we want a variety. But when it comes to friends and family, we have to ask them to tell us because everyone's resilience or capability to be dumped on with things or to offer support is going to be different. Everybody has different, you know, levels, different, different amounts of energy they can offer up. And that can also change, right? If your friend is suddenly going through um, a job loss or divorce or they're moving, or even for me, sometimes I'm just not available for a bit because like I had a wedding this last weekend and it was like, it felt like chaos. I like couldn't reply to anybody's text. Like I just was offline, almost like unreachable. (laughs) And so, you know, people are going to not always be there and we need to know when and why, and they need to feel free to tell us and we need to be okay hearing it. And then, you know, that's why we might need more than one person. We kind of spread it out a little bit, but that's really it. We have to ask them, they have to tell us, and then we have to hold up our end of the bargain also. Okay. And we might need to mention it, remind them a couple of times to let you know. Um, You could say it um, every time before you vent, if you want, if you are concerned, um, But yeah, it is on them to tell us. We can't read their minds, you know? Okay, final question. Question number 10 says, as an eating disorder specialist, how do you decide what level of outpatient care someone needs for a restrictive eating disorder? Are there certain criteria or guidelines that therapists look at to determine outpatient versus um, intensive outpatient, which is IOP, versus PHP, which stands for Partial Hospitalization Program? Or does it vary patient to patient? I'm in the process of seeking treatment for the first time, and there's a disagreement about what kind of care I need. My psychiatrist, so I have OCD, depression, and ADHD is not entirely comfortable managing my meds while I'm actively restricting, of course, and is trying to find a psych with more experience. An intake specialist at a local program recommended IOP after a 30-minute phone eval. My therapist, who does not specialize in eating disorders, think that's too high, thinks that's too high of a level of care for my current situation, and she wants me to do regular outpatient with an eating, um, eating disorder specialist and dietitian. However, outpatient ED providers are hard to come by around here. So my treatment is being delayed until we can find someone and I'm still pretty ambivalent about treatment. I know the sooner I get uh, I get help, the better, but I also see this delay as an opportunity to keep engaging with my behaviors. That's what I was worried about when I was reading this. My therapist and psychiatrist assure me that they're advocating on my behalf, but I'm slowly losing hope that they'll find a solution. It almost feels like the only answer is to get sicker so that there's no argument. No, don't let your, your eating disorders lying to you. Tell it to shut the fuck up. But I feel so guilty and gross even typing that. It's okay. No judgment. It's not you. It's your eating disorder. Is that a typical thought pattern for an eating disorder brain? 100%. Like 110%. Thank you for everything. Your eating disorder content has been my most reliable and insightful source of support while dealing with this very confusing disorder. Of course, I'm glad I could be a resource. Now, how do I decide a level? Depends on if my patients are getting better or not. So I... I have thoughts on your situation. And my thoughts are that your therapist is correct because you're not seeing an eating disorder therapist. So we don't really know if you would get better with an eating disorder specialist and a dietitian. But the fact that your psychiatrist has become concerned about having you like managing your meds while you're actively restricting, I think IOP. I agree with that per the local program. That's what they do for a living. They assess people. I would trust them over your therapist who doesn't understand eating disorders. And that's no hate on her. Like, I don't understand addiction fully. I don't specialize in it. I would always defer to my colleagues who do that full time. Or like, I don't treat um, autism spectrum disorder. It's not my specialty. I feel like that's a definite special, you know, specialization or like OCD I can help people with. But again, not my specialization, right? Always lean on the people who do it for a living, the specialists in that area. Now that person talked to you for 30 minutes and is like, you need IOP. I agree with them. And honestly, even the fact that you're struggling so much and you outpatient eating disorder, it's like hard to come by. Again, why I would go to IOP. Sure, I'd rather you, this sounds silly, but your therapist is like, oh, it's too much care. Sure, it might be. 
But wouldn't you want to err on the side of getting more support than not enough since we're already feel like we're unraveling? And of course you're ambivalent about treatment. You probably hate how you feel and are hating the symptoms or eating disorders like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like reveling in this. And that's what makes it so confusing. And it makes our makes us think things like, well, I just have to get worse. And then they'll have to put me in, which to me says that there's a part of you that's like, I need treatment and this is getting out of control. So we need to lean into that and get you in the IOP, make that decision, do it. You can pull the trigger on this. It's your treatment. You get to decide. I know you want it to be like in line with them, but I would just honestly say to your therapist, you know, I'm really struggling and this, this like delay is, is making things worse. I need to go into IOP. I need to get help now. When we come out, we can try to find an eating disorder specialist and dietitian. That's what we'll have for our step down care, but I'd rather you get more rather than less help. Okay. And the way that I overall just decide, because I don't know if I actually answer this question fully, is if a patient is getting better in care, then that level of care is good for them. If they're getting worse, they need more. And that's honestly just how I look at it. Everybody's going to be different. Everybody's eating disorder is different. Um, I always try like upping the sessions because I am a specialist, right? So I'll see them. And if I'm seeing them once a week, I might up to twice a week. And then if that still doesn't help, you know, then we'll look at other options and we'll look at inpatients like IOP, PHP. And if anybody's in other parts of the world, in the States, we are lucky enough to have a lot of different treatment options when it comes to this. I know other parts, some places have them too, but I know a lot of them don't. We don't just jump to hospitalization. There are step ups. So IOP can be like day it's like day treatment, half day, four or five. It could be all day. Um, PHP is when we live there. So IOP allows us to still live at our home. PHP means that we live at the facility where we get treatment. And then there's full hospitalization where we go. In, and that's hospital treatment stays tend to not be that helpful or therapeutic. I'm not speaking for all hospitals, but I'm just saying overall, the medical model is not as therapeutic as these IOPs and PHPs. So anyways, that's how we decide. I hope that's helpful. I'm proud of you for reaching out and speaking up and being honest about where you're at. And I hope that you're able to get the care that you need like ASAP. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Please share this podcast with someone. Please leave reviews. I appreciate you all so much and always open and welcome to your feedback of things that you like things you think I missed details about things um, that you wish I would have said. Leave that all in the comments. If you're watching this on YouTube. Um, have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.